You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. And, oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. Hello. Hello, my name is Michael Delgado, and my guest tonight is the L.A. Times best-selling author, photographer, and historian, Carolyn Campbell. A fascinating history and guidebook of the famed Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, her book City of Immortals is now out on Goff Press. It's part historical summary, part clever literary banter with some of those in turn, and part indispensable map. The work took her 30 years to complete, and it involved gaining permission and access from not only French authorities, but also the cooperation of other foreign dignitaries, estate managers, consuls, and family members of the deceased as well. Over the years that Carolyn was working on the book, she held positions as an arts communication specialist with prestigious institutions, including the Corcoran Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., the American Film Institute, and UCLA's School of Art and Architecture. At the end of the podcast, there's information on a special discount just for our listeners, so be sure to check that out. I'm pretty sure as a listener, you're familiar with the famous cemetery, which is the eternal home of artists, authors, playwrights, and musicians, as varied as Isadora Duncan, Chopin, Oscar Wilde, and Jim Morrison. But I asked Carolyn to give us a quick primer on the historic graveyard. Well, um, Père Lachaise was founded in 1804 um, as a byproduct of the necessity to deal with the dead people in Paris. Uh, when Napoleon <laughs> was named chief counsel, um, his engineers had done a beautiful job designing the city. However, they overlooked one major population, and that was the growing group of dead people, both from the French um, Revolution and various plagues. And the churchyards, which are traditionally where people are buried, were overflowing, literally. So Napoleon directed his um, engineers to solve the problem, and it landed in the hands of the prefect of the Seine, Nicolas Frechot, who was quite a creative marketer in the city, and he decided to have a competition. So they um, put out the word that they needed people to design a whole new concept in burial. So a first-time-ever architect um, and landscape designer, Alexander Brozniard, won the competition, and the sites that were chosen were really out in the countryside. They weren't in the city proper. There wasn't room in the city. And so the largest was a 16-acre site in the far eastern section of Paris, and it was um, on what they call Mont-Louis, and unbeknownst to me, Paris has mountains. And mm. Mont-Louis, Louis XIV, was the highest at a 1,000 feet elevation. So mm. the long and the short of it is it was a landmark and very revolutionary approach to cemeteries, the first municipal cemetery that wasn't overseen by the church, which didn't thrill the bishops because they lost a lot of income, not having right. people directly within the church or on the church grounds. 
And it wasn't exactly a big hit initially because family members didn't really relish the idea of having to trek all the way out to the countryside for the service, much less subsequent visitations. But over time, again, Nicholas for show um, decided that he really needed to somehow create an allure for this new concept. And that's when he came up with the idea of getting famous people there. And he bartered for some noble bones, got the remains of Heloise and Abelard, and then Moliere and La Fontaine. Pretty much the cachet was set. And then he started to kind of pepper the area with beautiful sculptures. And then when it caught on, it took really about a decade for it to really kind of become popular. And that's when the really well-known families started to compete by um, commissioning famous architects to build the family mausoleums. So it became this elaborate architectural museum, in fact, of beautiful styles of the era, as well as they would co-commission a sculptor to create works on the monuments. I remarked that such a marketing plan to prime the site with the allure of noble bones would be termed an influencer campaign today. Well, it's all about celebrity, right? <laughs> it's, it's timeless, whether it's the 19th century or the 21st century. Yeah, he really knew what he was doing. I mean, it was a big challenge because it was radical, really, for the era to have this. Uh, and with this in particular became a model for all of the subsequent cemeteries all over Europe and the United States, this idea of a garden-style cemetery because the location was a former Jesuit retreat of Father Lachaise, and of course they used the name Père Lachaise as another publicity hook. And it was beautiful rolling hills and orchards. There's like 5,000 trees on the property, um, hmm. rose gardens. Um, there used to be a water feature in it that is no longer there, but it was quite a bucolic environment, and the architects really responded to it. Um, they added to, again, another level of this radical change from the kind of Christian idea of a dark, scary, mournful place where the dead resided. And the architects had a more pantheistic view of, you know, a garden where divinity um, resided. And it was a, a place did for they, contemplation. So that's a pretty original idea, right? Or did they, were there precedents they were looking at? Not at all. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Louis Boulet, who was the mentor to Alexander Brogniard, was a very, very highly respected architect, and he personally felt that the commission to create a family mausoleum was a very desirable assignment, um, much so more so than doing a civic project because, in, in, again, in fact, it played into that whole concept of um, this spiritual environment of a cemetery and the divinity in nature. So it was, yes, a, a much bigger departure from any of the um, previous Christian approach to burial, um, which is pretty much kind of exists today, this a fear of death, right? Mm -hmm. And it's scary, and, and, and yet, you know, it's... It's inevitable. <laughs> so why right. not celebrate it in this beautiful natural environment? And that's what really attracted me to the cemetery initially. It's just unbelievably beautiful. 
Well, there really is nothing like a good cemetery, I always say. But seriously, listening to Carolyn and her impassioned description of the grounds made me wonder about our own contemporary versions here in the States. Flat, gray gravestones float aimlessly in a sea of well-kempt lawn. It seems soulless and sterile, terribly efficient, or at least not worth the trouble to mark our fleeting moment on the stage with much effort. In contrast, as we hurry from one Instagram post to the next Twitter feed, our obsession with youth seems to pale in a place like Père Lachaise. Right. Well, that's certainly a societal approach. I think anybody in their 20s and 30s consider themselves immortal and are never thinking about, you know, 50 years ahead. However, in my age, I have more time behind me than I do ahead of me. So I am treating my current day very Preciously, especially in this era of the coronavirus, where okay. at any any moment we could be down for the count. So I um, am very aware of how important the moment is. Um, I, it also became a part of my Buddhist practice. I had a teacher who, uh, for two years, he and, and all of our, his students had a death practice, where he suggested that you know driving along. All of a sudden, you stop at a stoplight, and death is in the back seat, and you're gone. Where are you now in your life? Are things complete? Are you present with your life? And it was quite a, a extraordinary experience to really equate life equally with death, because but they're both givens; they can happen at any time. And so that really made me think very deeply about how I'm living my life, how I'm spending my time. And especially since I think maybe, who knows, got a good 10, 15 more years ahead, how do I want to spend my time? Um, how do I want to invest in my creative life, and my friendships, my family? So I really uh, am kind of glad to have kind of serendipitously encountered this whole idea of what death means. Well, Caroline has been spending her time quite well. If the recognition of the passing of time in the pursuit of a goal characterizes patience and persistence, then Carolyn personifies the definition. I have trouble concentrating on my to-do list for the day, but Carolyn and her collaborator Joe Cornish pursued her book project for almost 30 years. The sustaining force in her endeavor seems to be her fascination with history as seen through the lives of historical figures. First of all, I love reading about history through the biographies of artists. It's always been my kind of book list. If I wanted to read about French history, I would read the writings of Colette uh, or Proust. And so this gave me a great opportunity. I had a very narrow reading list for about a decade. I could only read about people who were buried in Père Lachaise. And hmm. that was wonderful list. I mean, I, I yeah. read a lot of the Balzac, not, you know, Comedy yeah. Humane. <laughs> so yeah. it was not such a bad assignment to focus solely on, on French history and all of the residents in the cemetery. Well, especially at that time, that it was so central to all the uh, world history. So, you know, it's quite, it, it's a, a, a perfect prism to, uh, you know, view, view uh, history through 
both the biographies um, written about these people and people like Isadora Duncan and Edith Piaf did their own autobiographies. So I got to compare fact and fiction, right? <laughs> what the artists themselves perceived their life was and what other people um, observed about them. I felt like I had gotten to know them. Um, I mean, I must have read, for Oscar Wilde, I think I, wrote, I read seven different books. Carolyn's exhaustive research would take her down a wondrous rabbit hole where she would make improbable connections and meet all kinds of people, like Oscar Wilde's grandson. It was a, a, a pleasure. I got to meet his grandson, Merlin Holland, here in L.A. He was lecturing at the um, William Andrews Clark Library, which I don't know if a lot of people are aware. It's the largest repository of materials on and about and by Oscar Wilde anywhere in the world. Um, in his own life, he helped to restore Oscar Wilde's tomb in Père Lachaise. He partnered with a foundation in Dublin with the French government to restore the tomb. So every time, you know, one connection led to another connection to a, I, I had the same experience with Jim Morrison. I got to meet Ray Manzarek and Alain Ronet and all of these people who knew Morrison personally who just basically didn't hesitate in giving me all this incredible intimate um, information about their relationship with these people. That particular portion of her research helped form one of the most interesting parts of the book. In a chapter titled Conversations with the Immortals, Carolyn not only offers historical facts about certain inhabitants of Père Lachaise, such as Chopin and the aforementioned Wilde and Morrison, but through these interviews, she offers refreshing insights into their lives. I asked her how, out of all the historical luminaries buried there, why she chose those particular people. Well, it goes without saying Oscar Wilde, since he was my reason for visiting Père Lachaise to begin with, I would have, right. first of all, never gone to a cemetery on my first trip to Paris. That would have not been on my bucket list. But a friend, an artist friend at an opening said, I hear you're going to Paris for the first time. I said, yeah, I'm really excited. He goes, well, aren't you a big fan of Oscar Wilde? And I said, yeah. He goes, and you have to go to Père Lachaise Cemetery. I went, really? Paris, a cemetery? He goes, no, my ancestor, Sir Jacob Epstein, sculpted the monument to Wilde. Boom. I had my first destination. I'm sorry to say I, I've never been, and uh, I've been to Paris several times. The first time was a honeymoon, so cemetery wasn't really high on the list of places to go. And subsequent visits were business-related, and I never had or Well, I, I never made the time to go. I was curious if when she started, were there no maps or no guides? Well, when I first arrived, I went to, I was told to go to the conservator's offices, the administrative offices, which are right mm -hmm. inside the kind of the main door. And they gave me this little 8 by 10 sheet of paper, and I thought, oh, great, I'll find everybody. Well, you've got this little 8 by 10 sheet of paper that has a drawing of the cemetery and you'll, and that has a list of all the famous people and these little dots, right, designating where you'll find them. Well, you don't realize when you get to that dot for Frederick Chopin that there are 60 tombs in that location. And unless you know what the tomb looks like <laughs> and exactly in the area, this is what drove me to design. I started immediately sketching you know, really, you know, what the tomb looked like, where it really was, and how many steps in from one of the uh, pathways. 
And it took me probably, I think, about 15 years to finally design a final map. And because it's literally, you can't even, the original cemetery, which was called the Romantic Section, was about 16 acres. And that's where I think the rich finds are. And Chopin is there and um, Colette and Rossini and Bellini. Uh, it's, it's just, it's like all their friends are still hanging out together in this one concentrated area. And then over the years, it expanded and expanded and expanded, and now it's up to 107 acres. So I, I felt not only for me personally, but friends who were going, you know, Carolyn, can I borrow your map? And I said, oh, sure. And I would, they, I would hand them one of my little sketches. And then I finally, um, realized I, I maybe I can formalize this and as luck would have it I met a cartographer while I was working at UCLA and we collaborated and in 2016 we created the map that's in the book now it is a really nice map it's got four colors it's on two sides it includes translations and for a map challenged person like myself it opens out to a comfortable size that's easy to fold back up Thank you. And it, it really is helpful because um, I've been selling it <laughs> online and I've had people write me back and say, oh, we use it like a real treasure map. We, we wrote all over it and we made notes and it's dog-eared and it's fabulous. So, you know, it was it was it really kind of made my heart swell to know that all these yeah. people, it was really helping. When thinking about my own burial plans, which I do more than is probably healthy these days, but I suppose understandable in the midst of a pandemic. I think you need to pick a cool cemetery in case you have to hang out with everyone until the second coming or rapture or whatever. Well, that was Jim Morrison's. His He, early on when he was living in Paris, right before he died, he loved visiting Chopin's tomb, and he had told Alain Ronet, his fellow friend from UCLA years ago, said, I want to be buried here. But just not anyone can be buried there. The initial qualifiers, you either be, your family have has a crypt there already, you were born in Paris, or you died in Paris. So mm. the fact that Morrison had been living there for about a year, and he died there, that qualified him. You don't have to be famous, you just have to die in Paris? Oh yeah, it's, well, this was Napoleon's initial... Um, premise, he wanted it to be for all people. So depending upon your your ability to pay, you can buy a plot that is, um, it's, it's interesting enough, I discovered that the plots that are difficult to reach, that are farther into the, what I call sometimes the forest, are more expensive because they're more exclusive and for privacy. Whereas some that are on the main avenues are less expensive. And again, the size of the plot and another interesting fact, which I'm not quite sure it's, it's universal in all cemeteries, but you can rent a plot. So if families, and this is where it kind of gets into the problematic issue of what happens to a tomb that is not maintained, they, mm-hmm. And if you haven't paid the rent, they dig up the remains and they make the plot available to the next person. Wow, where do they put the remains? 
they there's something called the ossuary, which is up that main avenue when there's a large in the book there's a picture of it it's called O'Moore, and it's a beautiful monument of about twenty one figures walking into a doorway to the afterlife it's called to the dead on either side of those of that sculpture are two doorways, and the remains um from oh cemeteries that have been closed across Paris, all of the remains are put in that area. Um, it could be just like bones or cremated remains, and they're all stored. There's something like over a million remains in the ossuary. So, But wow. the good news is if you purchase a plot to the end of time or in perpetuité in French, you aren't you can't be disturbed. And luckily, Jim Morrison's uh, Grape's um, site was purchased in perpetuity. So people were saying, oh, he needs to be moved. There's too much traffic. There's all this graffiti. But no, he, he's, he can rest in peace <laughs> confidently until the end of time. Although the book is finished, at least this edition, Carolyn continues to uncover amusing historical anecdotes as she hasn't stopped reading about the site's occupants. Michael, still to this day, after decades, I'm still uncovering more mysteries, more fascinating historical stories about, you know, how someone ended up there, um, who they're buried with. I discovered that Gertrude Stein died 26 years before Alice B. Toklas, but there was something in the burial records. When Alice died, they disinterred Gertrude, and Alice was buried underneath her. That was Gertrude's wish, or how did it that was happen? Gertrude's. Yes, you know they were quite the pair, so they made a lot of joint decisions, and it was decided that um, when Alice passed, that she would be buried underneath Gertrude. I don't want to go into the details of their <laughs> intimacy, but maybe that's the way they preferred it. <laughs> In addition to the images of historical engravings, there are over a hundred fantastic photographs in the book. Early in its development, Carolyn had to make a choice. Would she be both writer and photographer, or could she find a collaborator? She chose the latter, and through a mutual friend, she found a co-conspirator in the UK-based photographer Joe Cornish, who was making a living on rock and roll portraits at the time. Perhaps it was the die-young part of the live-fast rock and roll equation that made it seem like a natural fit for Joe. But in any event, like Carolyn, Cornish was bitten by the historical bug just after the first visit. And I realized that I really enjoyed the research and the writing, so I asked Joe, I said, would you come and take photos? So for, I guess, through the 80s through the mid-90s, Joe was doing the primary photography, and then it kind of, and interestingly enough, Joe credits that visit to Père Lachaise in changing his entire focus on photography, and he is now the leading landscape photographer in Great Britain, and yeah. all inspired by Père Lachaise. Um, it's, it's, he's, he's with the British National Trust. He's their lead landscape photographer. He's got a fantastic career. But over time, I continued to move to Paris, um, and for the next 15 years, my photography skills grew, and I spent more and more time, I think, oh my gosh, I must have 4,000 images in my um, my folders in my archive. So right. Joe and I, we both decided, you know, on the photography, what pictures would be included, and 
since I had many of the most recent imagery and also had focused on a lot of the architecture and sculptures where Joe was doing a lot of, you'll see in the book, um, they're all credited. I think there's probably about 27 images of Joe's, and then there's reproductions from 19th century lithographs, and maybe I have about 80 photos. So um, I certainly probably had the lion's share, only because I spent, you know, another extra 15 years. I think my last visit there was 2018. Carolyn lives here in L.A., and I was curious that, with her love of Paris, why doesn't she live there instead? Good question. <laughs> um, I love L.A. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, I, I, I want to kiss the tarmac every time I come back to LAX. I really, really am passionate about this city and my friends and the network here. And quite honestly, this book would not have happened had I met, not had tea one day with the architecture and design author Michael Webb, who was writing, doing a story for Form magazine about the genesis of my map. And I, at the time, I was creating the GPS app and had a beta test of it on my phone. And I said, oh, Michael, look, check, check out the, check out this app I'm designing. And he goes, you have so much content. Why don't you do a book? And I said, mm. oh, yeah, from your lips to God's ears. What? writer photographer doesn't want a book he goes well let me reach out to my publisher gordon goff and within two weeks i had a book contract okay so if i wasn't in la <laughs> none of this would happen after a 30-year labor of love that's now topped the charts she deserves a rest but i asked her what she might be working on next well, you would think I might take a break, right, Michael? Well, yeah. the city of West Hollywood, um, I was fortunate enough, I, they invited me to apply for their um, author series, and um, I did my book launch um, at the city of West Hollywood, which I think enabled me to get on the L.A. Times bestseller list because we sold out. Book Soup was, was looking, borrowing books from my, the trunk of my car to sell, <laughs> and it was such a hit. Um, that they invited me to submit for a grant, which I subsequently was awarded. So I'm taking that grant money, and I'm going to turn the book into a performance piece. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Somebody stop me. We have a director in place. Um, we're going to collaborate with the Bancroft Middle School, um, a, uh, a school in the LAUSD system, and these 11 to 14-year-olds are going to perform the roles of all the characters in the book. Um, the young kids are very excited. They they have a really high goth tendency, so they love the idea of being in a cemetery. Um, these kids, you know, playing the roles of dead people, fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> they were really excited to play uh, Jim Morrison and Edith Piaf. So um we're again um in the early stages I've, I've pulled together a technical engineer who's really excited about putting it on zoom wish us well <laughs> i've got nine middle school kids who are going and they're they're going to help with all the staging it's going to be the grand experiment we're all very excited it's been a pleasure talking to you and congratulations on the book well thank you michael it's been a pleasure talking with you and reaching out to your audience thank you so much
You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. My guest has been author-photographer Carolyn Campbell. You can learn more about Carolyn and her book, City of Immortals, Père Lachaise Cemetery, Paris, at cityofimmortals.com. And as I mentioned, in a special offer just for our listeners, her publisher, Goff, G-O-F-F Books, has provided a link for a 15% discount for a signed copy. The link they provided was kind of long, so I shortened it via tinyurl. So just go to tinyurl.com slash y-c-r-k-k-d, like dog, 4x. That's, that's all lowercase. So tinyurl.com slash y-c-r-k-k-d-4x. And we'll have the link up on aggeiger.com, of course. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel and the music and artist management company, Regime 72. Please check out our other podcasts, as well as all our fine art books, at aggeiger.com. Thanks for listening.